Uh, what is Optima? Optima stands for the Oxford Project to Investigate Memory and Aging. And we founded it uh, 20 years ago, 1988. And what led you to found Optima? Oh, Optima, as the title says, is a study of normal ageing and the effect of memory, uh, effect of ageing on memory, and in particular in relation to Alzheimer's disease. And what Optima does is recruit people with memory problems uh, either before they develop Alzheimer's or at the early stages and follows them through until they die and at the same time we recruit volunteers of the same age the same general social background and we follow them through uh, so it's a comparison with, between uh, normal aging and Alzheimer's disease and what led me to found it was a combination of two quite separate things my own research in the laboratory I was doing then research on the brain in animals. It led me to a finding in the brain of uh, animals that uh, made me wonder if some chemical changes in the Alzheimer's brain might be reflected in the cerebrospinal fluid, the fluid that bathes the brain. And we showed that in, in animals this particular protein in the brain was secreted into the cerebrospinal fluid. So we wondered if in Alzheimer's if you could um, take some cerebrospinal fluid, we could find the levels were lower. Uh, and so I approached the professor of neuropathology, Margaret Asiri, and asked if she had any cerebrospinal fluid uh, from patients, and she said she did. And so we started this study, but at the, almost exactly the same time, my mother developed dementia. And so I, I watched her disease progress over a period of about 18 months. And, and Eventually she died of dementia, probably Alzheimer's, and that gave me a tremendous desire to do something about this disease, and so I spent the rest of my scientific life working on Alzheimer's disease, basically. And what is dementia, and is there a difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? Alzheimer's is the commonest form of dementia in the Western world. Dementia is basically a loss of the higher cognitive abilities of man. Um, particularly noticed by decline in memory, but also other higher abilities, um, judgment, ability to, to uh, plan and do things like that. And it's, it's a devastating disease because it affects the, the very, our very nature as human beings. And what causes it? Well, that is the big, big question which uh, we'd all like to know the answer to. There are several types of dementia. Um, very rarely they're caused by uh, mutations in particular genes um, and those of course can be identified now we know what the genes are but nothing as yet can be done about these particular dementias. Um, much more commonly uh, dementia is caused by a combination of genetic risk factors and non-genetic risk factors and those are the things that we're doing our research on in Optima. What are the non-genetic risk factors? Well, um, there, I would say in the last 10 years has been a realisation that there's quite a lot of non-genetic risk factors which are in fact related to our lifestyle. So things like exercise, lack of exercise is associated with an increased risk of developing dementia later in life. Uh, high blood pressure is associated with an increased risk. All these non-genetic factors 
seem to take place or the exposure to them in sort of middle age period. So it's not something you can do much about you know, when you've got, got dementia. You have to plan and, and alter your lifestyle quite early on. Uh, so, for example, it's been shown that people with high blood pressure in their 40s and 50s have a greatly increased risk, a greatly you know, four, fourfold increased risk of developing Alzheimer's when they're 60s and 70s. But if the blood pressure, high blood pressure is treated, as it were, for the rest of their lives, then their risk is brought down to the same as if they hadn't had blood, high blood pressure. So this is one of the great success stories. It's a, only recently been recognised uh, of preventive medicine that not only treating high blood pressure can prevent strokes and heart attacks but it seems to be able to prevent the development of dementia. What are the causal relationships between these non-genetic risk factors and the actual uh, disease? That's a, a subject of a lot of research of course. It's very difficult to, to see the link between exercise and, and the brain. Um, and that's one of the things Optima is, is doing a lot of work on. We're looking at the function of the brain by brain imaging using blood flow as a marker of brain function. Um, and we're looking at the structure of the brain by MRI scans. And even looking at the structure can tell you an awful lot about what's going on because as we age, the, the brain is shrinking. From the age of about 50, the brain starts to shrink at about half of 1% per year. And if we, if we develop memory problems, or what's called cognitive impairment, then the brain shrinks about twice as fast as that, about 1% per year. And people with full-blown Alzheimer's, the brain is shrinking about 2 to 3% per year. So this shrinkage of the brain is, of course, quite alarming when you see it and think about it, but it's a very valuable tool for us to investigate the processes. So we can measure it. Steve Smith in the FIMRIP, uh, laboratory at Oxford has developed very nice software which is used around the world to analyze the change over time in brain scans. So if you do a scan uh, at time zero as it were and then two years later you scan the same person, he can subtract one scan from the next and get a very accurate measure of the change in volume. And we've used his method with him to look at the changes over time. And uh, we haven't shown this but an American group has shown that people who exercise, actually it slows down the shrinkage of the brain. So you know, two sessions of exercise a week they found, compared with no exercise, uh, they found was actually good, good for the brain, um, which is an amazing result. We don't know what the link is, they suggest it's related to perhaps better blood supply or better oxygenation, but that's just a hypothesis. And we've been looking at the relation between dietary factors and the rate at which the brain is shrinking. And we found 10 years ago that um, a substance in the blood called homocysteine, an amino acid, uh, is raised, the levels are raised in people with Alzheimer's. And we found that in those people the raised level of homocysteine um, predicted the rate of shrinkage of the brain. So the higher the homocysteine the more rapidly the brain was shrinking. Now homocysteine is an amino acid whose uh, levels are largely determined by what we eat, in particular by the B vitamins, folate and B12. So we've been looking more recently at the relationship between folate and B12 in the blood, not in the diet, but in the blood, and the rate of shrinkage of the brain. And we found that uh, B12 was the key factor here. So 
people with normal levels of B12 or high normal levels, the brain was shrinking at about half percent per year, these elderly people. Whereas people with um, low normal levels of B12, the brain was shrinking almost twice as fast. And that's a, a very surprising finding in a sense because it, for the first time, couples something in, in the diet with the rate of brain shrinkage, and the rate of brain shrinkage is related to the development of dementia. So we, we are doing a clinical trial at the moment where we're giving elderly people, volunteers, with memory problems in Oxford, about 250 of them. We're giving half of them B12 and other B vitamins and the other half a placebo. And we did brain scans at the beginning. They'll take the vitamins for two years and then at the end of two years we'll do another scan and we'll find out whether actually taking extra B vitamins will slow down the shrinkage of the brain. We don't know the result, we won't know for a year. You mentioned high blood, high blood pressure becomes relevant in middle age. Yeah. When does the lack of B12 become relevant? We don't know, and that's a very good question. And to answer these questions needs a lot more research, and this research is expensive because what you need to do is to collect a group of people, we call it a cohort, um, like in middle age, take blood samples, do brain scans or whatever, and then just wait 15, 20 years and follow them through and, and uh, examine them again later on. And this can be enormously valuable. But of course it's very expensive because you have to track these people, you have to have the apparatus set up as it were to track them and people to test them and examine them. Uh, there's a, in my view a great need for more of this community-based cohort research in, in the field of dementia. In the field of heart disease and stroke it's very well established method. So what, one of the things we can do, and we're doing at the moment, is, is to tag on to some of the studies that have been set up to look at heart disease. So we're working with a Norwegian group in Bergen who've set up a big study on 18,000 people living in the western province called Hordaland, and they're following these people over many years, and we've already found some very interesting things from this cohort. They were set up to look at heart disease, but they've got blood samples, they've got dietary information, a, a huge amount of information. And one of the nice findings we, we had was that the relationship between intake of fish in the diet and, and the, ability, the cognitive abilities of the brain. Fish eating, of course, is very common in Western Norway. And we only found out of 2,000 people, only found 46 who said they never ate fish. As it happens, those 43 had rather poor memories and poor cognition, but that's probably related to the fact that they're a bit odd anyway if they don't eat fish in Norway. But having 2,000 people who ate fish, we were able to look at the dose relationships. So how much fish they ate in relation to their performance on memory tests um, in, in the next six years. And it was incredible, it was dose related. So it was an increasing performance or better performance on, on cognitive tests, six different tests, all of them, showed a better performance the more fish they ate per day, up to a level of about 80 grams per day. After that it was it reached a plateau. So this is strongly suggesting that, um, this doesn't prove of course, but suggests that you, know, you, you should aim to eat about perhaps two fish meals a week uh, to keep your brain healthy. So a decline in one's cognitive, cognitive ability can be a result of the uh, shrinkage of the brain, the brain that occurs naturally with age and also of insufficient vitamins and fish. 
Yes. We, we don't actually know whether the normal, if there is such a thing as normal age-related shrinkage, is associated with cognitive decline. In Optima, we have, uh, we've now reached uh, 1,200 subjects, and, and uh, so we have quite large, decent numbers to look at this question. We have a lot of our volunteer controls who are absolutely rock-steady. You know, they're up, they reach their 90s or even mid-90s, and their cognitive performance is absolutely uh, the same as it was in their 70s. So I'm a believer in successful ageing. I believe that there are, if we know what it is, there are factors that, in spite of the fact that our brain is shrinking a bit, that can compensate for that. But when there are some factors that, uh, if you like, disease-related in the sense that they lead to more rapid shrinkage of the brain, then of course we have the problems. So brain shrinkage in itself uh, with age doesn't necessarily reduce your cognitive ability? No, no. I don't think so. Right. You mentioned in the Norwegian study that you uh, made discoveries about the relationship between fish and uh, cognitive ability. What else did you discover from that experiment? Well, because we have a lot of detailed dietary information on this cohort of people, uh, we asked the question, what about very simple everyday things like um, drinking tea and eating chocolate and things like that, um, is there any association between these and our cognitive abilities as we get older? And believe it or not, there is. Um, we found that uh, people who drink tea, but not coffee, um, <clears throat> the more tea they drink up to a certain limit, obviously, uh, the better their cognitive abilities. It's a very small effect but it's highly significant statistically when you've got 2,000 people. We're not saying that if you drink tea tomorrow for the next two weeks, your, your memory will improve or anything like that. It's a population effect, but it's, it's significant, and it's dose-related. That's the nice thing about it. I'm a pharmacologist, so I, when I see a dose relationship, I'm very happy. It it's strongly suggests causation. And the same with chocolate. And the amazing thing about the chocolate was that the, the maximum dose uh, that was effective was as little as 10 grams a day, which is just a couple of small chunks of chocolate. And it was dark chocolate, so um, that's a probably important. So we're, we're interested about this. What is the, you know, what's the constituent of tea and chocolate? And wine, I forgot to say, wine was actually <clears throat> the most potent of all uh, in this cohort. Um, in Again, dose-related, up to a modest level. The Norwegians don't drink a lot of wine in the West for some reason. Um, so the, the highest level was of the order of one and a half to two glasses a day. But at that level, um, they had sig significant uh, better performance on six different cognitive tests. So uh, what is it in these um, foods that might be protective? And one hypothesis is it's some of the antioxidant activity. The flavanols in these foods might be related, but we don't know that. That's just a hypothesis. All we've observed is this link between these foods. But I'm, I'm sorry to say that coffee drinkers don't get any benefit. <laughs> so it's not in coffee. You mentioned that they're very small amounts. If one was to take very large amounts, would it have negative impact? <clears throat> well, we do know that's true for wine definitely for alcohol. Um, uh, above a certain level of alcohol, it actually can ma make things worse for the brain. And there's an alcohol-related dementia, of course, which is um, 
when you become basically an alcoholic. Um, so yes, I think so. What, what I think this is telling us about the relationship between diet and the brain and dementia is that there are lots and lots of factors, each one with a fairly small effect, that add up to give us a healthy, successful ageing brain. And this is the same with the genes. People talk about the genes a lot uh, in relation to dementia, but as I said at the beginning, the causation of dementia by uh, mutations in genes is a very rare event, probably 1% of all cases. But in the other cases, there are what's called genetic risk factors. Those are common um, genetic changes, or we call them polymorphisms, which are common in the population, and they slightly increase your risk of developing Alzheimer's, for example, maybe by a factor of 1 or 1.5 or 2 or sometimes 3. But they don't cause it. So you can have one of these genes and never get Alzheimer's. And again, I think that's the same story as with the dietary factors. These genes, there are many genes that might influence the possibility of getting Alzheimer's, but they all have small effects. And some of them will be protective, of course, and some of them will not be. So it's the small effects of many genes, the small effects of many environmental factors. And what we're trying to do in Optima is identify the strongest of these environmental factors because these are the ones you can actually change. You can't change your genes. Would it be possible to come up with a, a plan for a lifestyle that someone could Yes. Uh, one has been proposed by a Swedish group in, in the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, actually a prevention plan um, which involves treating high blood pressure, uh, controlling diabetes, which is very important, um, having regular daily exercise, and having a, a diet uh, rich in vitamins. So I would go along very much with that. It's, it's a proposal, of course, it's very difficult to test it in a population, because you can't test it blind, people know what they're eating. But it certainly fits with the evidence we have so far from observational studies. That seems like a, a fairly simple set of guidelines. Yes. My message to people is improve your lifestyle. It's good for you, it's good for your heart, it's good, good for your blood vessels, and it's good for your brain. Are there any activities that one can perform, I'm thinking of these uh, brain training games, yes. do they actually work? There's, there's a, quite a bit of evidence that they might help. And certainly what does help is keeping the mind active. So. Interestingly, a, a, a French study showed that people who uh, have a lot of social contacts as they get older, people who travel a lot, people who read a lot, seem to be protected from developing dementia. So yes, I think it's a whole, whole body, as it were, a whole system, uh, not just the physical side of it that's important. Are there any uh, policies that a government could put in place to improve this? Because you say social interaction. Yes. I think the government should take a lead in promoting healthy lifestyles in general. I think that would be extremely helpful. Um, they could also encourage um, social interaction amongst the elderly. There's an awful lot of loneliness, people living on their own. And uh, in, in Sweden, for example, they have a, quite a lot of, of groups, social groups, where people attend. And uh, this is government-sponsored, so I think it would be well worth looking at here. And does that have the potential to prevent some people uh, progressing into Alzheimer's? I think, I think this, we go a bit too far to say 
that it does, but it might do, together with all the other factors. I, I think we need more research on that. Basically, we need more research on this whole issue of the relation between the environment and development of dementia. And uh, research funding is very difficult to, to obtain in the UK, sadly, uh, for dementia research. UK has some of the best scientists around for this area, but uh, they're starved of funds. And um, the total funding for Alzheimer's research in the UK is running at a, approximately, although no one really knows, but approximately, let's say, £7 million a year. That's not much. When the total cost of dementia to the country is £17 billion a year. Because all these costs fall on social services and families for caring for all the people with dementia. And the number of people with dementia is going to more or less double in the next 20 years in the UK. So we have a real problem and if the government would face up to it and uh, uh, recognise that research is the only answer, then we'll make some progress. What are the average costs involved in your longitudinal studies? Longitudinal studies are expensive because it, it, you need, for example, in our case you need nurses. Um, Optima has 17 staff, um, six nurses, two doctors, and except for scientists, of course, and um, graduate students. Um, so the costs of a, looking after a cohort that is studied in great detail, which is what we do in Oxford, is about more than half a million pounds a year. But you can do studies on community cohorts for a bit less. But, of course, you really need larger numbers. So if you increase the numbers, then the cost does go up. So if we take your figure of 7 million, that means there could only be 14 such like yes. studies in the UK. Yes. And unfortunately, most of the money doesn't go for cohort studies. It goes for molecular biology, genetics. A huge amount of the funding is at the moment for genetics. And I have to say, to be honest, I haven't seen a really useful outcome from the genetic studies. There's some interesting findings, but nothing useful or practical, uh, whereas we can make practical uh, improvements by studying environmental factors. Why is it that there's been no practical breakthroughs in genetics? I think it's, it's a sort of naive belief that if you discover a gene, you'll discover a treatment. Uh, every new gene that hits the newspapers, uh, you know, someone is quoted as saying this is an important step on, on developing a cure. Well, cure, we're not going to cure Alzheimer's. We can prevent it, I believe, but not cure it. Um, and that's a mistake because uh, only extremely rarely do we know exactly what these genes are doing. In almost all cases in the Alzheimer field, we don't actually know what the genes are doing that are, are associated with the disease. And so if we don't know what they're doing, how can we exploit them to treat the disease? What other forms of treatment are available once you've gone past prevention? Um, at the moment, the only treatments for Alzheimer's are really relieving some of the symptoms, particularly the memory problems, and they are fairly temporary, so they probably last not much more than a few months or a year or so. And um, they don't actually slow down the disease process. So this is the next big aim of the pharmaceutical industry is to find drugs that will slow down the disease process. And there's, there's work being done on these, but they're not actually on the market yet, and it's some time before they will be. We believe that prevention is a much better, more secure way of doing it. Um, by identifying the risk factors that you can modify. But of course it takes time. You, you need to expose yourself to 
the, the treatment and, the, say, taking vitamins or whatever it might turn out to be for a long time in order to prevent the disease. So older people who, are, uh, who have just begun suffering from the onset of Alzheimer's, yes. what can they do to limit the impact of the disease? We don't really know um, what they can do, but what we encourage our patients to do is to become you know, active, socially and mentally. And, uh, and we always look at the diet, we look at the markers in the blood of, of their diet and if the diet's a bit wobbly as it sometimes is in elderly people, we suggest they have an improved diet. Uh, otherwise I'm afraid I can't think of very much that they can do. Obviously if they're fit they should perhaps take some exercise, nothing strenuous, you know, just uh, half an hour's brisk walk a day is, is, uh, is what they say is good for the heart, I'm sure it's good for the brain. But whether it will actually slow down the progression, we don't know. It's a hunch I have that it will help. And it certainly helps in the, the person to feel better, and that's important. What would you hope is going to be the next uh, development in your own area of research? What would you most like to find out from your studies? We would most like to find out from our studies a definite a risk factor that can be modified which is, has a powerful effect on the disease rather than just a small effect. So I think drinking tea and wine is not only a small effect but we have hopes that our vitamin study will be positive and that would be for me the, the most uh, wonderful result would be to find something that uh, is easy to correct either by diet or by a combination of diet and taking tablets. Uh, which we can recommend to people at a certain age, say from 55 onwards or something. That would be my hope. Professor Smith, thank you very much. Okay.